Good morning. The scripture reading today is Luke chapter 21, verses 5 through 36, which can be found on page 1603 of the Pew Bible. Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen and what will be the sign that they are about to take place? He replied, watch out that you are not deceived. For many will come in my name, claiming, I am he, and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilences in various places, and fearful events and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison, and you will be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. And so you will bear testimony to me. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdoms that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish. Stand firm and you will win life. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out and let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment and fulfillment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. He told them this parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Be careful, or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life, and that day will close on you suddenly like a trap, for it will come on all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch, and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen, and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man.
I'd like to start with a little participatory part of the sermon, okay? It might be a little too close to home to start with, but let's give it a try, okay? If you have ever been let down, okay, so you can either stand, depending on how much this is true or how much you want to bodily participate, stand or raise your hand. If you have ever been let down by someone not keeping their word, raise your hand or stand up. Relative to the amount of times and the severity of those times, right? Like if you, somebody has said they were going to love you and they just didn't fight for your relationship. They said that they're like, they were going to deal with some demon in their life, some addiction, habit, whatever, that they weren't going to let it destroy your relationship, but then they gave up. That, like just, I mean, there's so many versions. People said something in earnest and didn't do it, right? Most of us. You can put your hand up, see it. One of the things that we learn very early in life is that the words that have the most staying power are like the ones we actually wish we could get rid of. <laughs> most horrible things people have said to us. Those like, they stick in there somewhere and they stay, right? They don't pass away. Almost everything else, man, it seems like it passes away. People make promises. They say all kinds of things. I mean, in terms of the history of the world, they may never have been more words than there are right now. And words may, in some ways, have never meant less than they do right now. Even, like, in our jurisprudence, like, legally, more and more the way we move legally is, like, that you shouldn't have to, like, live up to what you said before. Whether it's in marriage or contracts or things like that. And even though, as modern people, we know that the sun has about five billion years left of burning time, give or take. Um, and though the singularity is a little off for some of us, so we might not be alive in our robotic states at that point, um, that might as well be forever from now. And so in terms of what passes away, like the earth, the land, the moon, the sun, the stars, that's never going to pass away, right? And so we exist as people who fundamentally believe that certain things in our environment that we believe that we can count on will always be there and they will never pass away, and we can count on them. And that there are other things that are very transitory that we can't count on, and perhaps first among those things is stuff people say. Right? Whenever you look at like a big passage like we looked at this morning, one of the things you want to ask is like, is there a foundational truth? Is there like a unifying thing that everything here builds off of, right? This is Jesus' last public teaching in the book of Luke. It's his last thing to tell all his disciples before he just has the last supper with his apostles. And I, I think the most fundamental statement in this passage is this. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Now, it's important to recognize what Jesus is actually talking about here, because you might be, you might interpret this like in a psychological way and be like, well, or moral way, you know, love your neighbor never really gets old, right? Like, there's all kinds of moral teachings of Jesus, like, you know, be for the oppressed and love your neighbor as yourself and so on. And um, Jesus probably said be true to yourself somewhere, right? And like those kinds of statements, like those realities, like they'll always be true, right? So in that sense, Jesus' words will never pass away. That is not what Jesus means. Okay? By the way, he doesn't ever say be true yourself, in case you're wondering. Um, it, do, it doesn't ever— no, What he's talking about here is his promise 
that he is going to return and things are going to happen. And among the things that are going to happen is he's going to bring about his eternal kingdom. That just like winter must die and spring will come, that a new age will come of which he will be king, that will be happen, that will happen. And that is yours and my greatest hope or should be our greatest fear. In, in verse 32, the verse right before he says it, he says, I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Now, generation there is, is, is kind of a strange word. There's a lot of ink that's been spilled over exactly what Jesus means there, because it means something like age. It doesn't literally mean this group of 40 years, right? Because some of that stuff hasn't happened yet. So it means like this people— this people over a particular period of time, this era, because he uses the word age in a different way. What that word means there is essentially the people of the church in this time from his ascension till his return. That group of people will not pass away until everything he says is going to happen has happened. And him saying that cannot pass away. And that not passing away is the basis for the strong, courageous kind of persevering he's telling these people in this passage they're going to need. Right? Because he basically said in this, it says in this passage, it's going to be tough, man. There are going to be hard times. And so there's going to be stuff you're going to need to know. One of the ways you could summarize this passage, you could say Jesus wants every Christian to develop a martyr's heart. Jesus wants every Christian to develop a martyr's heart. Now, in, in modern America, the word martyr has kind of come on hard times because it's often associated with Islamic extremism, and so martyrdom is associated with uh, being violent towards other people. The word marturo, the Greek word that that's based from, comes from the Christian tradition, and it, it is—the word marturo means to witness or to speak the truth as a testimony. That's what the word means. It doesn't mean to die, and it doesn't mean to kill. And so— um, what the word, what a martyr is, is somebody who stands in any situation, stands in the identity of who they are, and speaks the truth no matter what is done to them. That's what martyr means. It doesn't mean somebody who dies for a cause. It means somebody who testifies to the truth, usually as part of a cause, no matter what is done to them. And so in the Christian tradition, now this may be because we, we got beat up. Right? We were—there was no—there were no victorious Christian armies for a few hundred years, okay? And our conception of martyrdom was completely set by the end of the New Testament, right? And so this idea that, like, no matter what you do to me, I'm going to be who I am in Christ. I'm going to tell you the truth, right? It says this passage, says, listen, they're going to bring you before rulers and authorities. They're going to kill some of you. The reason this is happening is so that you can marturo, you can testify, you can witness, you can profess the truth to them so that they can be won over. Right? That's what it means. But what you also need to realize is over the course of Luke's gospel and the whole of the Bible, Jesus is constantly saying, you don't just need that mentality for this end, these times, these difficult situations which perseverance is going to be profoundly necessary. You need it basically like every minute. Look at 1246 today, you're going to need a martyr's heart. Right? It says in Luke 9, 23, he says, listen, anybody who's not willing to take up their cross daily and follow me cannot be my disciple. Right? Why does he say that? 
Why does he say, listen, if you're going to build a tower, what you should do before you even start to build the tower is you should figure out how many bricks you need, the cost of everything, whether you can find the masons you require. Everything needs to be done and make sure that you can build the whole tower. Because if you can't build the whole tower, you shouldn't start building it at all. Right? You need to know the whole cost, what it's going to take to get all the way to the end if you're going to do some difficult endeavor. Otherwise, don't start. Right? Don't try to drive to California with $30 for fuel. Unless you're a real people person. You know? And so Jesus is saying, not just, listen, terrible things are going to come and persecutions are going to exist and you're not going to be loved. You're going to be hated in my name and you're going to need to have an incredibly stout heart. You're going to have to be incredibly courageous. What he what he's also says all through his message, he's saying, listen, for you to be spoken to badly by somebody and not to take offense, nor to harbor a resentment, but to see what correction there could be in the mistreatment you're receiving so that your heart could be more driven towards the character of Jesus and by bearing it the way you should, you could be a witness to the other person. That's a little death, man. It's a little death because you got to let your sense of dignity die a little bit and count yourself as belonging to Christ who let his entire divine dignity die on the cross with him so that he could be our savior, right? Every choice you make about the leisure you're going to forego, the money you're not going to spend on yourself, the future that's not going to be as glamorous as you dreamed because you made certain choices to be involved in life in certain ways, the bravery it takes to form a long relationship or have children or sign a lease in a city that you may not feel like you belong in or whatever it's going to be. Be part of a church where you're not the majority in some way. Like there's all kinds of ways in which in order to accomplish what we're meant to accomplish in Christ, we die all kinds of little deaths, whether in worldliness, whether in persecution, in many ways. And like if you're not ready to die a little bit at 1146 today, you aren't ready to follow Jesus. Jesus says, you can't be my disciple. See, there's a mentality to, am I ready to do everything it takes to be who Jesus is calling me to be? And if the answer is yes to that, that is always a little death. Right? It's always a little death. Like last night, I was playing a video game that I had deleted from my tablet that I had been playing again. And I really wanted to play because I was half sick and wasn't falling asleep as fast. And I was like, what the H-E-L-L am I doing? This is not what my—I have four children— I'm going to leave the country. My wife needs stuff from me. Why am I doing this? Right? And it, it, honestly, okay, listen. It feels a little like a death to be like, all the pleasure that I could have the rest of the time I would play this video game, I'm going to burn to ashes to be who I'm supposed to be. It's a little death. You understand? And in some ways, human beings, we're dramatic creatures. In some ways, a lot of us, it's easier for us to say, go ahead and kill me. I'm never going to deny Jesus. If you're going to kill me, just go ahead and kill me than it is to actually die 10,000 little deaths over the next two years in all the little ways necessary to belong to Jesus fully. And so whether or not you'll face any of the persecution that is described in here, and you might, the, the planet Earth is not going in the right direction on human freedom and religious freedom, okay? Things are getting bad in China. Things are, have turned in a bad direction in India. There are a number of ways in which in many places of the world— Christian perse persecution against religious people of all sorts, and Christians in particular, is getting really bad. There are camps again in China for Uyghur people. 
Like, it's not good. Okay, so let's not pretend— Let's not pretend that the world is going in the right direction right now. We had a, like a, a nice run from like 1992 to like 2009 or something. Okay, but we're not on a good run right now. And it could get worse, and we don't know. And Jesus said in a number of places, listen, if they persecute you in one place, you're allowed to flee to another place. Like I've heard Christians say, you know, it's a shame there's only like 1% Christians in Iraq now and like less than 1% in Syria now because all, they've all fled— be- Jesus literally said, if they persecute you in one place, you can flee to another place. You don't have to stand there and die to be a witness. Like, tell the truth, but if they're going to kill you, you get to get out of Dodge. Right? What we need to recognize, though, is if Jesus takes the time to say, listen, you need to develop the heart of a martyr. Heaven and earth may pass away, but my words will never pass away. Why does Jesus say, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away? And the, the answer should be very clear. This is not difficult exegesis, right? The answer is because the time would come for every person when it would be very possible to doubt that Jesus' words would never pass away. Why do you, why do you make promises to people? Right? Why do you say, I'm never going to leave you? You don't have to worry about that. Why do you say, like— why, why, do you, why do you tell people, like, when I hired you, it was because I believed you could do this job. I still believe you can do this job. Why do you tell people that? Because they're afraid they can't do the job. Because they're afraid that you're going to leave them. Because they're not sure that what you said before, you mean now. They're afraid your word is going to pass away. And Jesus knows. Listen, he knows you and I feel like, may, maybe it's not true anymore. Maybe it was never true. Maybe it's not going to happen. Maybe it's, Right? And it's not because of just time. Like, I know some people would say things like, look, it's been 2,000 years. 2,000 years. Like, how long are we supposed to wait for this Jesus to come back? It's 2,000 years. He didn't say exactly. And what's really the difference between 500 and 2,000 exactly? Or if you suffer for 10 minutes— If God is willing to allow you to suffer for 10 minutes in his wider plan because he's after something bigger that is all being worked together, which includes the exposure of you to suffer for 10 minutes, what's the difference between that and 25 years or 2,000? Precisely. Right? I mean, we may be near the end times. We may be in the first moments of the early church. Jesus might not come back for 200,000 more years. Have you thought that? I don't know if that's true or not. Every generation of Christians thinks they're in the last generation because nobody wants to die. <laughs> Good luck with that. Right? Like, we all want to believe. Like, every, we look around. There's always wars and rumors of wars, uprisings and pestilences. Jesus literally said that'll all happen and the end will not come. Right? So, like, until you see, like, six moons, like, just be careful about assuming things are so bad. Okay, like, can you imagine what people thought during the Civil War in America? Their whole book's written about how, like, this was the end times. Right? Okay, I'm getting off topic here. Okay, the point is— The point is, is that how much time we have to wait for something is relative to progressing on a plan that we can believe in. Okay, so let me— Imagine, imagine two newlyweds, and the woman got into Harvard Law, but they live in, like, southern Illinois, and the guy basically hates Boston, okay? And so 
she's like, I really want to move there and like pursue my dream. My dream is to like be a civil rights lawyer and I want to go to Harvard and do international civil rights law and blah, blah. And he's like, all right, baby, I really love you. Like, I super hate Boston, okay? And he, she's like, okay, but th this is my dream. And she, he's like, okay, listen. She's like, listen, it won't just be three years. Like, I gotta go to live school, and then I'll have to do an internship, and then I'll have to work at a firm for a few years. Like, it'll probably be like a seven-year gig. And he's like, okay. Like if, that, like, if that's really what you want to do, then I will, we'll do it. Okay, right? So they move, like, and so after, like, you know, nine months, they've been there, like, nine months, right? And it, like, it just doesn't look like she's studying that hard, you know? And he's like, sweetie, I, I kind of feel like, I don't, are you, are you going to class? Like what? It feels like you're going to a lot of coffee. I think she, she's like, well, I kind of quit the law school thing. Um, what? Well, I had, I had two dreams. You had two dreams? I had two dreams. I wanted to be able to go to baseball games at Fenway Park. And I kind of wanted to do law. And he's like, what? She's like, I've been to like 46 baseball games so far this season. And he's like, we are moving! Right? And so like, and she's like, but wait, you said that you could do this for seven years. Like you told me that like, it was worth it to you to move here with me for seven years. She's like, well, what's changed? She's like, the plan has changed. Like you are going to do law and chase your dream and like all this stuff. And like, you've been going to baseball games. And she's like, well, I really like baseball games. She's like, I don't care. Right? Like, you could imagine, like, he doesn't want to stay, right? And it's because it's not the amount of time. It's the plan. It's he doesn't—he believed in the first plan. He does not believe in the second plan. And so he doesn't want to wait any longer, right? And you see, if you and I misunderstand the plan we're a part of, if we undermine and don't believe in the goodness of God's overall plan, like what he's doing, like what's happening right now, and how we're the small part of that, and how he's called us into it, and we don't understand most of the things about it, but we know what we're supposed to be doing in it, and how we are—like if we don't get that, we will not understand the plan. And if we don't get the plan, we will tell ourselves it's too long, but it was never the time. That's what we'll tell ourselves. He was too—it took too long. That was never the problem. The problem was we stopped believing in the plan, right? And so what Jesus does in this passage is he goes through a number of things and he says, I need to reset your understanding about who you are and what, what plan we're a part of and what's going on and what it means that God is God. Because if you let worldliness cloud in and, and answer these questions for you, it will set up a system that will screw up your faith from the bottom out. And you won't even really know why you won't believe anymore, but it'll, it'll mess up your capacity to believe. And you'll just be angry with God. You won't know why, right? And he's like, you need to get these things straight. And so there's a—I want to go through four points relatively quickly, okay? So the first is, Jesus is saying, what you think the public record is, like what has happened, that record you think you believe in means precisely nothing to God. Okay? So you'd be surprised how many news shows are called On the Record. Right? Like, new, like people in the media really believe in this thing called the record. Right? They'll even tell you if you're interviewing, is this on the record or off the record? Right? 
And like, there's the whole, right, we call the New York Times the newspaper of record in America. That's kind of pompous way to talk, right? right? There's all these, well, we have this record and that record. And we have the, like, and, and so we have history books that, re, that like record history. And we have all these histories that we believe in and certain truisms about history. Like, this was a good thing that happened in history. And that was a bad thing that happened in history. And, you know, this is why this happened. And that's why that happened. And oftentimes, when you learn about why things happen in history, you're told one reason for why they happened. Nothing in, ever in history happened for one reason, right? It's just completely simplistic. And all of that, and it's not just that. It's more than that. Because you have a history in your own head about you. You have like the authorized version of your life in your memories. That's, that's a version of the record. And other people have beliefs that they have about you. They've lived with you long enough that they have a record about you. And you're constantly like having to deal with the like historical record on you in their minds. Okay, right? There's all these records. What people think counts. What people think matters. Who's up? Who's down? Who did what? Who did that? Who's important? Who's not important? All of that. All of that means precisely nothing. Nothing. Two examples in this passage. It's almost Passover. Passover is one of the most important holidays in, in all of Judaism. Herod's temple was one of the greatest wonders of the ancient world. Better than, like you've heard of the seven wonders of the ancient world, Herod's temple was better than probably four of them, okay? So it was, I mean, it was made with a kind of like glazed blue marble so that when you walked into the main temple area, it looked like you were walking on water. You, Josephus said you couldn't actually look at the temple during certain parts of the day because the gold was so sh like shined up on the thing that it looked like a bright white fire light shining over all of the Judean landscape. You couldn't even look at it. It was so bright. It was amazing. He had basically bankrupted Israel with three enormous building projects. Masada, the Herodian, and the temple, right? And, um, and of course, it was all decorated with gifts for God because it was almost Passover. So everybody's coming and bringing big gifts, and they were like bringing animals and lambs and flowers and all kinds of things. It was like, it was like everything was decorated like, I mean, it's like Jewish Christmas. You know what I mean? It's like it's the biggest decorative holiday of the year. And all this is going on, and people are bringing big amounts of money, right? And you know what it says in the first five verses? There's this old lady, this widow, and she's like, in the midst of all that, she kind of is weaving her way through all the people. It's probably really crowded. And she gets over to this money box, which is on the far right corner over by the court of the women. And she like goes in and she puts in two copper coins, her Passover gift. And then she just leaves, right? And nobody sees her. And Jesus is sitting there and he goes, he goes, look, watch this, watch this, watch this, watch this. See that lady? Watch the lady. Boom. Two copper coins. That's all she has to live on. That is the biggest gift. I mean, imagine that. Like, what Jesus is trying to say is, that's the record, okay? That's my record. See, I, nobody saw that. I saw that. That's what matters to me. She gave the most. None of this matters, right? In addition to that, like the temple. They're like, Jesus, man, this temple. What, what an amazing place, and what amazing gifts for God, right? And Jesus is like, let me tell you about this. Let me tell you about these gifts for God, okay? Let me just tell you right now what's going to happen. The day is coming really soon when there's going to be nothing left of this temple. Like, literally, there will not—there won't just not be gold and marble. There will literally not be one stone laid upon another stone. It will—it's all going to get torn down. Now, th now, think about that for a second. He's not just saying—he's not just saying that the temple is going to be torn down. In all of the world, according to the Old Testament, there is only one physical place that God said he would put his presence. Like, that he would take it seriously enough 
And he would defend it enough, and he would care about it enough that his own presence would physically be there. And it was the tabernacle of the temple. And twice he said, I'm going to tear it all down myself. Okay? Now, that needs to get computed in here and in here. Like, God is so serious about his real record, which is the record of devotion, real repentance, the transformation of heart, the rejection of deep hypocrisy, the worshiping of God for all his true attributes, the realizing of ourselves in the true humanity we're meant to experience in the Spirit, the real loving our neighbors as ourselves from the heart, being generous with the people in our life, actual real spiritual transformation, the real living out of the image of God, the real loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, that he will burn to ashes the temple built in his own name, the place of his own presence, in the midst of his own people. Okay? That would be like me believing my kids were spoiled enough that I burned down my own house. Okay? Then I'm like, listen. You can, this house, kids spoiled you kids. I just go, Lex and I go out and we get the gasoline and we're like, this through the whole, we burn the whole thing down with all their stuff in it, all our stuff in it. We're like, okay, now, who's got an iPhone? You know, like that's, that's what that's like. Like, think how committed God is to truth. And I don't just mean like abstract truth, but like real truth in the heart. Because see, you and I both have, we have a record, a religious record that we hold dear in our own hearts. That we think means something. Stuff we've done, money we've given, people we've been nice to, stuff we think is virtuous, right? That all means precisely nothing. Nothing. Right? And so like if you— we want to be able to stand before the Son of Man when he comes. One of the first things we have to recognize is like all of the pursuits of being part of all the records in our hearts, our minds, religious or non-religious, worldly, newspapers, videos, prestige, certifications, degrees. Listen, all those things are useful in their own scope, in their own proportion, in their own way. Right? I was a history major. Stuff's all important in its own way. But when it comes to the return of the Son of Man, when it comes to the, the real truth of those things, they mean nothing. Don't think that you will hold a book when you are being judged by God. God will have all the books. And he will have written them. And so do not comfort yourself that either other people's interpretation of you the interpretation we like to hold as a culture that we think keeps us safe within the mob, or even your own interpretation of the meaning of your own life will mean anything. And you see, if you want to be truthful with God, that's really good news. Because people are going to misunderstand you. People are going to attack your name. Your good name might be completely besmirched. You might, all kinds of terrible things might happen to the public record of you, right? If you're trying to please God and not men, it's very likely that men will not be pleased with you. And so the public record on you might be terrible. But the public record means nothing. And you have to believe that with a martyr's heart. That heaven and earth will pass away, but his words will never pass away. And that woman who gave two coins, and this temple is going to be torn down, and the public record means nothing. And you have to know that. Or you will be pulled into a different plan 
And you will not like how Jesus allows you to function in it, and you will get mad at him, and you will think his words have passed away. The second is, is that we take the wrong thing from his instructions. Right? One of the things that people often misunderstand about prophecy—I won't spend the same amount of time on all of them—about um, prophecy is, is that we kind of want to know the dirt. Like, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? How's it going to happen? What's, We're really interested in the drama of the prophecy rather than the truths the prophecy wants us to grapple with. Right? So prophecy is intentionally vague. Right? Because think about this. Imagine like a show that you saw where um, like the—somebody knew the future for some reason, right? When human beings know the future relatively precisely, what do they try to do? They try to change it, Right? Yeah, they try to change it. They're like, I'm going to change the future. So they start, they start tinkling, tinkering with the things that are going to happen so that they can get the future that they want, which is not why God gives prophecy. God gives prophecy to say, listen, I have a future for you. It will be good. I'm not telling you hardly anything about it other than that it's going to be good and that I'm going to do restorations and stuff. In fact, almost all of the prophecies about the future in the Bible are in poetry. Why are they in poetry? Read through Isaiah. Almost all of Isaiah's poetry. Why? Because it's meant to leave an emotional effect, not to describe the future. Right? There's enough that you can recognize that when it happens, you go, oh, this is what Isaiah was talking about. But you would never be able to work things to that future. The whole purpose of prophecy is knowing that future, that it's good and God wants to work it. What truths must you grapple with now? Which is, of course, repentance. And turning to God and understanding what he's called us to do and becoming discerning and becoming vigilant and watchful and growing in our character and becoming spiritually substantive and growing in godliness. And if we do those things and walk with him, he will work out his prophetic will. Does that make sense? That is, if we move from wisdom, from, from wisdom, from gossip to wisdom, like it's, instead of saying, wisdom says, like, how can I prepare to live better in a life full of unknowns? Like, your life is going to be full of unknowns. The question is not, can you know the unknowns? The answer is no. You can't know the unknowns. What you can do is know what you must become so you can walk with God and face all the unknowns. What gossip says is, well, what's going to happen? Who's going to do it? How's it going to work? And you can see this right in the passage, right? Jesus says, Jesus says, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another, everyone will be torn down. Teacher, they ask, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign they're about to take place? Right? What and when? Tell us the details, Jesus. And then Jesus says, he replied, watch out that you're not deceived. See what happened there? Jesus, give us the gossip. And Jesus goes, no, let me tell you the instructions. Right? The instructions are, watch out that you're not deceived. If, you, if, you, if you're not careful, you will get caught up in stuff. And if I tell you details, you will think those details apply in the wrong situation, and you'll follow the wrong people, you'll do the wrong stuff. If I tell you more details, that's actually not helpful. But if I instruct you in who you have to be, you can walk through all the many details I won't tell you for generations. So he says, watch out that you're not deceived. For many people are going to come, and there's going to be all kinds of wars and rumors of wars and pestilences, but the end is not going to come, and you need to hang in there, right? And then at the end, at verse 34, he says, be careful. Be careful. Meaning, in how you look over your hearts, and in how you trust in God, and in how you realize that his words will never pass away, and 
how you, he says, be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. Verse 36, therefore, be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that's about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Right? What does watch and pray mean? So that like in our hearts, in how we reflect on God, how we pray to God, at the center of our hearts is, how do I live, God, so that when you come, when the Son of Man comes, I'll be able to stand? What kind of person do I need to be? How do I need to repent? How do I need to live? What choices do I need to make? God, how do you want to direct me so that everything in my life is guided so that when the Son of Man comes, the natural bodily response will be to lift up my head rather than to say, oh no! My response will be like, oh yes! Finally! Finally, that 50-degree day of spring has broken. I can feel it. Winter must give way forever. Right? Okay, can I keep moving? Once you do that, you realize what this passage is mostly talking about is not prophecies about the future, at least not relative to you in 2019, right? 19? Okay, good. Yeah, so he says this stuff. A lot's going to happen. Don't get confused, right? Now, you might think that's not a big deal. It is a big deal. If you don't think a lot's going to happen, you'll be lazy. If he's like, listen, you cannot afford to be lazy. A lot of stuff is going to happen. Like, them, if I came to you and said, listen, in the next 10 or 12 years in America, a lot of stuff is going to happen. A lot of stuff that you're not counting on is going to happen, right? Like, and you believed me. Like, you know, somehow I knew that, but you don't know what's going to happen. What would you do? Would you be like, I should play more video games? You might not. You might be like, I should learn how to fix things. Or maybe I should get some food and put it in my basement. Or maybe I should—I don't know what you would do, right? Like some people would like, I don't know, take a last vacation or something, or buy firearms. I don't know what you'd do, but you might get in shape or do something, right? You'd be like, I need to do something. But Jesus is saying, listen, stuff is going to happen. Listen, things are going to happen. You're going to need a martyr's heart. You're going to need it to be prepared in you. Like, like some of you are like early in your life. People haven't done that much to you yet. Life hasn't been all that hard for you. And you're like at college and it's like a good college. And you're like, yeah, yeah I, like I've suffered. Listen, <laughs> your life is going to get harder, busier, more difficult, and more complicated. And you need to work on your character now. Because just life without much going on is tough. If you're going to live from the heart to God, rather than just for yourself as you feel. If you want to live the, like, the individual expressivist life and just do whatever feels good, you don't need to train for that. Okay? You just, just follow your hormones and your glands. But if you want to be more than an animal, like if you want to live as the spiritual image-bearing creation God has made you to be, you have to train for that. You have to, to work on that. You have to become mature in that. And, okay, there it is. Okay, you're going to be persecuted. One purpose of that is for you to witness. So when people are mean to you because you're a Christian, shutting up is probably not Jesus' intention, right? Don't worry about what you're going to say. Be ready for profane mistreatment. Like, when, here's what you need to recognize. When he says, oh, the betrayals are going to be terrible and close. It says family members, parents, brothers and sisters. Like, there cannot be anyone too close, so close to you, that if they betrayed you, you'd lose your faith. Now, that doesn't mean don't be close to people. It just means people are going to betray you. Be close to people. Love them. 
Be close to your family and friends, and some of those people may betray you, and it will feel terrible. And it's okay, because you die every day. And when somebody betrays you, it'll feel like a death, because it is. And you will be strong enough to die and to carry on. Your heart will be resilient. You'll realize you'll have compassion for them for why they betrayed you. Like, you'll love them. You'll be able to deal with it. Fine. It's when we're weak and people betray us that it's unbearable. Right? And then he says, everyone will hate you because of me. And you're like, well, that's, kind of, that's not very nice. Well, hopefully that's like, uh, be ready for everyone. It may not be quite that many people. Okay? But when he says that, it's, in, it's important for us to recognize that one of the things he means by that is, they will never say, I hate you because of Jesus. Okay? In some places of the world, at some times, it will be, I hate you because you're a Christian. Okay? But not in America right now. They will always say it's something else. Right? It'll be the Christian sexual ethic. It'll be like, you won't stand for gossip. You won't gossip about people, and they'll hate you because you won't do that. It'll, it'll always be something in what godliness looks like, that you know is a non-negotiable. Like, it's—you can't, like, get rid of it. it. Like, it is what it means to be a Christian. And you can't just stop doing it. And they will attack the thing. But Jesus is saying, from my perspective, they don't hate you because you believe in the sexual ethic I taught. They hate you because of me. Because why do you hold the Christian sexual ethic if you do? It's not because you were like, you know what, I was thinking through the sociology of this, and I'm just thinking that intact families, blah, blah, blah. It's, like, it's not that. It's because Jesus said, this is what your body is for. This is what it means. This is what I created you for. You need to live this way and then see how it blesses you. You, you believe it because of Jesus, right? And then maybe you've learned to figure out how it makes sense. It's because of him you won't gossip about other people behind their back and play along with everything else. It's because of him you won't go along with those little corruptions. It's because of him that you're open about your faith. It's because of him. And Jesus says, I know that's why they hate you when they do. Right? All right. And then he says, but listen, what you also need to know is just as sure as those things, not one hair on your head can perish. And by standing, you gain life. Okay. Three, I left the three out for some reason. God's plan is complicated. The more simplistic your idea of God's plan, the more likely you are to think you understand it. The more likely you are to understand it, the more competent you think you are to judge it. The more competent you think you are to judge it, the more likely that you will and judge it negatively. And when you judge it negatively, you'll hate it and think God has not really done what he should do to expect you to wait this long and to go through these many hard things. Here's the problem. God's plan is extremely complicated. It's like, on one level, you could say God's plan is the story of the Jewish people, the coming of Jesus, right? The age of the Gentiles, whatever that means, and then Jesus' return, and then the kingdom of God, right? And like, yeah, that's, that's the plan. It's, but it's a little like FDR saying, like, we're going to go to Berlin, you know, in World War II. It's, I mean, it's, it's the big plan. Like, there's a lot of littler plans than that. And if you think that like, that's all there is and you can judge it based on that, it's very naive, right? Just in this passage, Jesus is saying, okay, 
a cer- there's a certain amount of judgment that's already been written about in the Old Testament that's going to come on Jerusalem in this desolation, and then this is going to happen, but then you're going to go here, and then these other things are going to happen, and that all has to happen, and then this is going to happen, and then this age is going to end here, and then this is going to happen, and then there's this age of the Gentiles things, and then, like, you go through this passage, there's, there's like— 10 or 12 different, like, events, event clusters, and, like, the actual order isn't super obviously clear because it's not really supposed to be, and the only event that's really clear is the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, and then we know Jesus is going to return. That will be a global event, and all the rest of it is, like, kind of vague. The one thing you're supposed to take from it is it's really, really complicated. Like, why does he say, listen, you're going to hear about wars and pestilences and these are going to— Why does he say all that stuff but not get specific? Right? And the answer is, he wants to leave the impression on you that he understands it all, that he knows all the details. He's not going to explain all the details to you, and you're not going to know them, but they're all good details and important, and you just need to know your part. Your part is, be prepared, watch out, follow Jesus with all your heart, Be prepared to give testimony for him anytime you need to. Live wholly and completely for Jesus in this thing called the church. His witness in the world to call all people to be reconciled to Jesus and to become part of his family and kingdom. So that all the world could know and be invited to him. That's our part. That's not all God is doing. Listen, the Missio Dei and the Missio Ecclesia, the mission of the church and the mission of God are not the same thing. When you hear people in church say, well, we should be part of the mission of God. The church is, is, the, is part of the mission of God. So anything God wants to do in the world, we should be doing. That's not right. Now, it's true in all of our vocations, in all of our lives, we are part of all kinds of things that God is doing as his mission in the world. But his mission in the world, the mission of God, and the mission of the church are not the same. The mission of the church is a tiny subset of a bigger mission of God in the world. And our job is first and foremost to do the mission of the church. Then, through our lives and our vocations, and maybe through some of our organizing together, we can participate in other aspects of the mission of God. Does that make sense? But we need to make sure that we do the mission of the church thing dead on right. Does that make sense? And, And we can't not do the mission of the local church dead on right to do the other things we think are part of the mission of God. Because the church is what we were commissioned by God to do. The other things are part of us just walking in the world in all of the structures and relationships that we're naturally in. Okay? But if you understand the complexity of the mission of God, and then you understand your part in it, it's much more likely you're going to get persnickety and angry about having to wait and having to suffer and having to struggle. Does that make sense? Because you know you're part of something well-planned that is working that he cares about. And last is that the end is going to be really clear and decisive. That you, you actually don't have to worry about missing the end. And you don't have to worry about if there's going to be an end. And you don't have to worry about actually what the end is going to be like. And you don't have to worry about whether or not you're going to have to fight for the end. No, no, your fighting is now. Right? We're, not, we're not preparing for it. This is the time of struggle. This moment now is the way of the cross. This is the time where we are walking with Jesus through difficulty so that we can share in his glory. Like it says in Philippians 3, becoming like him in his death. And so, somehow, to attain the resurrection from the dead. Jesus says, listen, there's going to be lots of people who claim to be speaking for me, but when I come back, you will see it. I will come to the whole earth at the same time, and everyone will know, and you will know that that moment of your redemption has come. 
Now, Jesus is very straightforward about what the application of this is. What does he want you to take away? And what he wants you to take away is this. You and I have got to have the courage necessary to persevere. The great danger, he says, is that we will not have the courage to persevere. We will fail to persevere, and our hearts will have a kind of heaviness that will weigh them down, and we'll give ourselves either to pursuing pleasure or to be lost in the fears of anxiety, and we'll lose our faith. See how that's very similar to the Substance series where we talked about how, like, the thorns of worldliness choke out faith in Mark 4? It's a very similar idea. He says your heart will be weighed down. You see, in this case, the, the metaphor isn't the truth will be stolen out of it. It'll just be slowly weighed down and weighed down and weighed down, right? Like wearing like a big cotton outfit and it just is raining on you. And over the day, it, like your outfit actually can soak up to 40 pounds of water weight. And you don't even realize it's happening, but like it just gets, just gets heavier and heavier and you plod slower and slower. And what was insulating you is now chilling you. And you don't really even realize what's happening. And then you just, you just run out of steam. And he's saying that's what happens. The only way for that not to happen is for you to actively, directly, methodically, in a disciplined way, fight discouragement and fear that will tell you that Jesus' words have passed away. He said, he said, you have to be careful about your heart. You have to be careful. Be careful every moment. What's happening in your heart? Like, think about this for a second. Do you watch over what's happening in your heart as the most vigilant thing you watch over in your life by a factor of at least 50? What resentment is rising up? What anger do you have? What are you sick of having to do? Where do you think you're being misused? Where are you growing cold about Jesus? Why don't you want to read the Bible anymore? Like, what, what is really happening in your heart? And why is it happening? And what's going on? And is what you feel like your heart is being weighed down? Right? Like, some of you are at, at college or at school, and like, you're just around worldliness constantly, and every assumption is against you. Every assumption is against you. And you— you, you can answer some of them, but you don't really know how to answer some of the objections. Like, you don't feel like you're getting the answers you want, and yet, like, over time, you can feel the emotional weight of your heart being weighed down. And you want to choose either anxiety, like, these people will never like me if I don't agree with them, or dissipation. I just need to have fun. I'm young. Like, I can be serious about religion later. Maybe we'll see. Your heart is being weighed down. And Jesus is like explicitly saying this is what happens to human beings. We become like the people we're around. We succumb to the pressures around us. We are very effective people. Otherwise, why would he make a church? We're here with each other in order to personally affect each other because human beings need that. And he said, so what you need to actively do is to always be on the watch over your heart and to pray so that you can grow in wisdom to be discerning about what is about to happen and know what you should do. And so that the only thing that steers your life is the question, will this make it better or worse for me to stand before Jesus on the day he comes? Because at the end of the day, that's all that matters. Because if, it, if the thing allows me to stand before Jesus arriving, then it's good. And for every other reason, I should do it. 
And if, at the end of the day, if, when, if this is true of me, when I stand before Jesus coming, it doesn't make it good to stand before Jesus, then it's bad for a hundred other reasons, and I shouldn't do it. There's more that matters than just standing before Jesus, but that becomes the test by which I understand everything I'm called to do, everything I'm meant to be, what should be going on in my heart, and how I should then live. Right? And it's, for, for, it, it, and it's that place where courage finds its sticking point where it's lost. And it's that on which perseverance rides. And so you and I need to fight with everything in us to watch and pray and be careful and to watch out. Like those are the commands. Do you see the commands? Those are the four commands. Follow this. Watch out that you're not deceived. Be careful. Always watch and pray. Do you see the, the theme there? The theme is vigilance. It's clarity. It's looking over. It's being focused. It's knowing how easily that we're influenced. And it's hearing over and over again Jesus saying, not one hair on your head can perish. And standing, you will find life. I will return for you. The heavens and the earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. Make sure and see to it that you are ready on that day when the Son of Man comes. That was his last public teaching to all his disciples. When they would enter a time of waiting that they didn't know the end of, but they could know how to live. God, as we, um, as we try to take in what this what this chapter is supposed to do in us. We pray that you'd make us a people that are sufficiently watchful, sufficiently vigilant over our hearts. People who have a martyr's heart, who are willing to die, not just to die. And I know we probably think of that flippantly, but Father, we pray that you would make us a people who think that seriously about the meaning and purpose of our lives. Not so that we'll be ready just for any future gut check or moment where we'll have to face these things, but that today, like today when sin comes up and turning away from what's wrong and being who we're called to be feels like a little death, that we would embrace death with open arms for the good and beauty that it would bring to do what's good. And would you free our hearts from what weighs them down? Turn us away from the dissipations and places we just please ourselves for no reason and the ways in which anxiety wants to take control of us. And help us to feel the freedom of knowing that it's in perseverance, in standing, that we find life. We pray in Jesus' name.